Welcome to the Keep Moving Pod with Dr. Sam Oltman. Because the only way to keep moving is to keep moving. Hi there, Dr. Sam Oltman here, naturopathic physician, regenerative medicine specialist, musculoskeletal ultrasound expert, and foot health guru on the Keep Moving Pod, talking to you about health and all things related to keeping you moving. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Keep Moving Pod, episode number three. Today, we're going to be talking about the business of medicine. Uh, we're going to be talking about the incentive alignment problem in medicine, the role of capitalism and profit, um, alternative models, and how um, my business model, while maybe not a solution to the big picture problem, does provide a solution for people in the here and now. So, uh, to start, we just want to set the stage. The United States healthcare system is the most expensive healthcare system in the world, uh, and it is in first place in terms of expense by two times the second place country. Right. So the uh, the the degree to which the United States healthcare system is expensive is not simply that it's the most expensive, right? It is it is the most expensive by a mile, right? More, it's two times more expensive than second place, right? It's four times more expensive than like the fifth or sixth place country, right? So it's astronomically expensive, right? It's, it's on an order of magnitude more expensive than any other country, okay? So... That's just, that's a fact that's been a fact for many, many years. That's what we're dealing with, number one. Number two is of, you know, I struggle with the language around this, but just to use someone else's language of, you know, the quote unquote sort of like developed economies of the world, right? So a group of countries that have, you know, a certain, that are above a certain threshold of GDP of those countries, the United States is last in health outcomes. Okay. So we have by far the most expensive system and we have the worst system in terms of outcomes, right? So how are those two things, uh, occurring at the same time, right? So, and it's not just, so we have, we have poor health outcomes. We're also last in access to care. We're last in administrative efficiency. We're last in equity. And then just like I said, we're last in just health, like just measurements of health of the citizenry. So those two things are both true at the same time. Um, it's a very unique situation. Uh, the no other country is is anywhere near us in terms of dysfunction at this level. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're in a situation where these two things feed each other because... In a recent survey, the uh, recent survey of Americans, the top reason given for skipping or delaying care was affordability, right? And skipping and delaying care leads to worse health outcomes, right? So you have this cycle now where because U.S. healthcare system is so expensive, people avoid care or delay care, 
the delaying care results in worse outcomes. Worse outcomes results in more expensive treatments, which results in more delayed care, which results in worse outcomes, which results in more expensive treatments. So that's where we're at. That's the United States healthcare system. Like I said, it's not comparable to any other country in the world, um, present or past. So that's the landscape that we're currently in in this country. Let's get to the business. So the business of medicine, looking at medicine from a, uh, a medicine slash healthcare delivery, right? We're sort of using these broad terms, but anything that is uh, delivering a patient medical care is what we're considering sort of medicine slash healthcare in this conversation. So classic economic approach is people and organizations respond to incentives. Um, this is sort of your uh, classic free market capitalism, uh, set up the incentives correctly and people will do the right thing because people act generically in self-interest organizations as well. And there's a converging on optimal outcomes uh, if incentives are lined up correctly. Uh, so what are the incentives in the United States healthcare system? So I would argue that incentive alignment is the most important factor to get right from the start. Uh, and the United States healthcare system has it very, very wrong. At Cascade Regenerative Medicine, my clinic, my primary goal from the start and continually every day is to be in a position uh, to align my incentives with my patient's incentives. By having this as a primary goal, I know for myself that the, the actions that I take are, um, while, while they're not, while nothing is, is guaranteed to work every time, the incentive alignment is a way to make sure that, that, you know, that I'm not tricking myself, right? I'm, I'm very cognizant of, um, of biases and of the way that people, including myself, but the way that human beings work is that we can retroactively explain away our actions. Um, and so by sort of protecting ourselves from psychological phenomena we know is going to happen, like, um, you know, telling our, you know, we're all the, we're all the good guy in our own narrative, right? So, um, what you want to do is set up a structure where you're guarding yourself against, you know, convincing yourself that doing something is the right thing where we know that it's not. So aligning incentives with my patient's incentives is the number one thing in my business, in my clinic. Um, and I believe this is possible because of number one, our small scale, right? Small scale, operations are more agile and they're more responsive. And I think that one of the things as we'll talk about is the large scale of the system and of the problem itself is, is a barrier, right? Like the, the small scale solutions don't, I would say almost, you know, they small scale solutions rarely scale up to big scale solutions, meaning you need different answers depending on the scale you're working on. And so, um, 
I'm not under any illusion that like my business model can translate to an entire country, much less an entire, you know, city or state or region. But um, as we'll get to more, you know, I, I do think the the care I'm able to provide is possible largely because of keeping it small. Uh, number two, because we have a negligible administrative burden. And number three, because of transparency. And so I would say none of those three things are features of the United States healthcare system, right? So where Cascade Regenerative Medicine is small scale, the United States healthcare system is enormous. Where we have negligible administrative burden um, and direct patient care, the United States healthcare system has probably the most complex administrative network in human history. Uh, and where we have transparency, uh, the United States, uh, transparency in terms of, in terms of outcomes, in terms of the treatment risk and benefits, in terms of the cost, in terms of like what it is that you're getting into before you get into it, like really true informed consent, transparency, uh, the United States healthcare system has really opaque and surreptitious routes to getting care that confuses most people and is impossible to navigate, even if you're quite skilled in these areas. So what is going on with the incentives in the United States healthcare system? So the main thing or, or the, the, the starting point I should say is private health insurance companies. So private health insurance companies and maybe private's not the right word it's it's independent or, or non-governmental um, healthcare insurance companies they are for-profit enterprises they are businesses um, and they are their their primary incentive as an organization right is to uh, create excess revenue in the form of a profit to you know, grow and feed the business, right? That's very, very basic. I don't think that's deniable I don't, on, on any level. Um, there's nothing wrong with profit. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. I think capitalism is the best engine for, for human ingenuity that we've ever invented. And I think that it, um, it's silly to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when we talk about profits and, and capitalism. However, that structure of profit uh, may and often does lead to incentive misalignments. And so the unique part about healthcare in comparison to other areas where we see capitalism work really well, right? So when you have something like smartphones, capitalism and the, and the profit motive drives competition for better and better products um, because people are going to choose where to put their money, essentially. All right. So this is, this is you know, sort of economics 101, but the, the sort of quote-unquote free market um, approach would be you have a product, you compete with other similar products, may the best product win or may the best product gain the most sales, right? And that competition leads to innovation and better and better products, right? That's that's really the ideal scenario in, in, in terms of capitalism, right? So um, 
In healthcare, however, we have something very different, right? Because there's a choicelessness that that exists in healthcare that doesn't exist in the sort of like consumer driven um, side of things like in smartphones. So we all get sick. Every human will get sick. Every human will die. We have no choice about how that happens or when it happens, right? So there's a captive population, right? Like we're all captive to mortality. So unlike where you can choose or not to choose or not choose to get, you know, the new iPhone. Uh, and that's, that's to whatever degree possible. That's a free choice, right? That's, that's, you can, you can choose to get one phone or the other or not to get a phone with healthcare that, that dynamic does not, does not exist at all. Right. So there's a fundamentally different sort of free market component that's going on with healthcare. What this does is because people have no choice um, as to how or when they get sick or when they need healthcare, the competition between healthcare providers and health insurance companies, the competition is not to provide better care, right? It's to provide quote unquote cost-effective care or quote efficient care, right? So what this does is it develops a race to the bottom, uh, because there isn't any there isn't any true shopping around, right? There's no true choice um, because you can't choose not to get sick. Um, so I think this is a really really important distinction when we talk about well, you know, if if we just unleash the free market on everything, right? Um, it will all sort of work out for the best, and I think that we can see that while I am like personally very much um, will admit and 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 will advocate for capitalism to be the best uh, driver of innovation for especially for consumer products more than anything um, and technology and whatnot. It doesn't apply to everything in the United States, right? What we have is the the most sort of capitalist healthcare system in the world. And we also have the most expensive healthcare system in the world and the worst health outcomes in the world. Okay. So those, those, those things that we said at the beginning are not disconnected from this profit motive, which, um, which drives the incentive misalignment between insurance companies and patients. So this gets us to the next point, which is what is the responsibility of these companies, right? So health insurance companies are the, the biggest ones in the country are publicly traded uh, corporations, right? So CVS owns Aetna, uh, United Healthcare, Cigna, Humana. These are all publicly traded companies, right? You can look up their ticker symbol, you can buy their stock, you can own ETFs with a collection of these things altogether, right? those organizations by definition are legally uh, have a, have a legal responsibility toward um, their shareholders, right? It's called the fiduciary responsibility, right? So these companies are providing healthcare for people and they're legally, their prime incentive is to return value to their shareholders. Okay. It is not to provide the best care possible for its members 
or patience. Now, oftentimes these two things can be the same thing, right? Like there can be situations where providing value to shareholders and providing the best care possible may overlap, but they are nowhere near 100% overlapped. And I would argue they're mostly not overlapping as far as these, these two dynamics, right? And that right there is an incentive misalignment, right? The companies have an incentive to maximize shareholder profit um, and the patient or members of these health insurance companies um, have an incentive to, to be healthy. And those two incentives are not aligned with each other. So I think structurally from an economic perspective, it's really important to realize that, right? The, the company that you are paying to provide you healthcare insurance is um, primarily concerned off, you know, not every company is publicly traded, but with these ones in particular, their primary concern is returning value to shareholders. Now, when you talk about healthcare as a business, right? How do you return value to shareholders? It's you increase revenue and you decrease expenses, right? Those two main variables are what increase profit. When we're delivering healthcare, again, in contrast to a consumer product, the, the healthcare is an expense, right? So I think the, the economics of this people, people don't necessarily kind of take fully on board all the time, which is when you are using your health insurance on their ledger, right? On their profit and loss statement, them helping to pay for your healthcare because you have, you know, strep throat or you have a UTI or you have diabetes and you need medicine. Those things are expenses, right? So those, you know, if you get too many expenses, you decrease your profits and you're, and then as a company, you're, you're reducing value to your shareholders, right? So I think that again is another incentive misalignment where the, the incentive for insurance companies is to increase profits by increasing revenue and decreasing expenses. But the delivery of the product itself is an expense. And so the insurance companies are going to work, whether they're doing it sort of explicitly or implicitly, they're going to work to reduce expenses through reducing the amount of care that they deliver to you, the member of the insurance company. Now, not all insurance companies are publicly traded. Uh, you know, here in Oregon, we have a company called Providence. Providence is a 501c3. They're a nonprofit, right? They have a, they have a religious, um, sort of component to their, to their nonprofit status. Um, this doesn't really change anything about what I've said. Obviously they're not publicly traded or you can't buy Providence stock on the stock market, but, uh, just because they're a quote unquote nonprofit organization does not mean that they're not out, uh, to make money in the same way that all these other companies are. Um, at last tax return check Providence, I believe in 2021, maybe 2022. Yeah. 2022, um, had $152 million in profit. They paid their CEO and president, uh, over $8 million in base, uh, compensation. So, uh, one person, $8 million a year. Um, you don't need to be a for-profit publicly traded company for these dynamics to, um, um, to, um, to be present, to, to, to 
be a motivating force. Okay. So, so <clears throat> we have misaligned incentives from the, from the, uh, perspective of a choiceless population or cho- choicelessness within a population because you can't choose when to get sick. Uh, the responsibility of the insurance companies is to shareholders or for, you know, to the business itself, as opposed to the patients and the patient's care is an expense. On top of that, uh, you have an interesting dynamic, which is who is the customer in the U.S. healthcare system? I would argue that the insurance companies and the hospital systems are customers of each other. They're the ones exchanging an economic uh, activity, and the patients or the you know insurance members are the product or the or the resource, right? So it's like the 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 lumber or timber company in economic relationship to a home builder, right? Selling them wood products. Um, the, you know, the, 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 in this analogy, right? The insurance company would be like the timber company. The home builder would be like the hospital system, right? And the patients are the trees, right? The, the patients are the raw material for the economic activity, right? And that's a, that's a, different way of looking at things because people think, oh, I pay my insurance company. I'm the customer of the insurance company. And I I would argue that's not really the case, right? It's sort of similar to social media where people think when they use Instagram or or whatever, that they are the user of those platforms. um, When in fact, they're the product, right? When you use social media, you are the product of a company that sells your attention to advertisers, right? So the advertisers are Instagram's customers and you are the product, right? I would, I would argue it's a similar dynamic with health insurance companies and hospital systems. They're in business with each other. Patients are the raw material um, and the product of the system. The other thing that, and so again, that, so that dynamic, right? Like the, the, the insurance companies and hospitals are not concerned in a primary way with the patient's outcomes, right? They're, or, or with, or with, um, with your personal interests, right? They're, they're concerned with how can we be more cost efficient by providing, you know, less care or cheaper care or, you know, um, all, all sorts of different sort of strategies from a, from an accounting or business perspective. So the other thing that this, um, sort of setup promotes is, uh, a misalignment between short-term and long-term thinking or short-term and long-term incentives. So one of the things that's unique in the United States healthcare system is that people switch insurance carriers pretty regularly, right? So within the private health insurance world, um, there's, you know, people switch jobs and then they get new insurance, right? People, uh, you know, will be on one insurance with their family or their parents until they're 26 and then they'll switch. And then, you know, people generally switch, you know, two, three times at least before they turn 65 and then are eligible for Medicare. So insurance companies obviously know this. And so, you know, when you look at a population level and you say, okay, well, on average, people are going to switch 
um, and they won't be with us, right? So if you are Aetna and you have, uh, you know, X number of people on your books as members and these members are seeking the best treatment for their long-term health, as Aetna, you're going to say, well, we're not going to be the ones dealing with their long-term problems because they won't be with us long-term. So there's no incentive for Aetna to to protect you from long-term downsides because they're not going to be the ones picking up the bill, right? So again, just strictly economic incentives because of the ability to switch insurance companies and, and really the inevitability of switching insurance companies, right? Like no one does it, you know, to, or, you know, people don't do it on purpose. Like you switch jobs, you switch insurances, right? Or you get, you know, like me recently, like I got married a few years ago, switched on to my wife's insurance, right? So, um, the, that's inevitable, right? And, but from the insurance company's perspective, they look at, they look at patients and they go, okay, well, this person is, is seeking a certain, uh, or their doctor, right? Recommended a certain treatment that they think will be best in the long term. Um, like a, uh, platelet rich plasma injection for their, um, knee pain. Now, as an insurance company, we can look at that and say, okay, well, you know, we, um, we have no incentive to cover this treatment now because we are not going to be the ones paying for a knee replacement, right? So if, if they were, right, if it was the same entity paying for the, for the long-term downside, then there'd be much more of an incentive to do the to do the preventive medicine components because you're going to foot the bill eventually, right? So let's be more efficient, you know, an ounce of, um, an ounce of treatment or an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of treatment, right? But they know on average that they're not going to be the ones footing the bill for the long-term health consequences. So their incentive is to say, deny all of that care, do PT, basically run you around, until you basically get discouraged and stop seeking care, they're happy because if you stop seeking care, that's less expenses, right? They're, they've reduced their expenses by, by, by discouraging you out of seeking solutions for your uh, pain. So I think that component, short-term, long-term, the preventive part um, is another, yet another example of incentive misalignment. And it's something that, that, that cannot be changed unless we change like the, the base level structure of how we're set up with health insurers. Because if we're not with the same entity for our life or for a really long period of time, there's going to be no incentive to, to get people the best long-term outcomes. Even if for one person, it's cost efficient to do the thing, um, that's, that's more preventive or going to be more beneficial in the long term. For an individual, that might be cost effective. But for an insurance company, um, they'll do a cortisone shot and keep covering cortisone shots, knowing that it accelerates your path to a knee replacement because they're likely not going to be the ones paying for a knee replacement. Okay, And that's an economic incentive dynamic. Now, 
the last kind of component that's happening in the United States healthcare system that has been happening now for um, many years and it really accelerated the last few years is the privatization and consolidation of healthcare organizations. And so you have this systematic, um, uh, the systematic buying out and buying up of small independent clinics that's been happening by both private equity firms and by large insurance companies. What this has been doing, and you can see this in statistics of just physicians, right? So f- physician population, um, the, the, por- the proportion of physicians who are self-employed has steadily gone down over the last you know decade or two. And the proportion of physicians who are employees has steadily gone up, right? Because as these big companies are buying out small independently owned clinics, the, the owners or the doctors, the providers of those clinics go from being, um, you know, self-employed to employees of the bigger conglomerate. So by what's happening at a sort of macroeconomic level is that there's a creation of bigger and bigger conglomerate organizations. It creates a monopolization or consolidation effects, um, mostly locally, right? So in local markets, we see this happen, um, which in turn provides less choice, right? So we're already, like we said at the beginning, we're already at a point where people have, they don't really have a true free market dynamic because there isn't really much choice to begin with, right? As far as you can't choose what kind of health you're in. I don't know that's a loaded statement, but in general, right? Like stuff happens. Um, now, instead of being able to be like, okay, well, there's four hospitals in my area. Which doctor do I like the best? Let's let's choose which one to go to. It's, no, there's actually two hospitals and your insurance company will only cover care at one of them. So it's actually, you have, you have zero choice. You're just going where your insurance company tells you to go. Okay, so the bigger and bigger um, consolidation of, of and weeding out of all of these small clinics creates less choice. Uh, like I said, this is happening both by private equity firms and by large insurance companies. So it results in basically the same dynamic, which is with bigger and bigger organizations, you have more and more administrative inefficiency and you have more and more of top-down measures that are coming from um, executives and administrators who are not the healthcare providers, right? In a small clinic like mine, um, I'm the healthcare provider and the decision maker in the business. And so it's much more of a bottom up, um, with smaller clinics, it's much more bottom up as far as, you know, the, the quote unquote boss or the, the person in charge is hearing directly or is directly the person providing the healthcare as well. And so there's a, there's a nimbleness, um, an ability to respond, um, that doesn't exist with bigger and bigger organizations. What happens with top-down decision-making, right, is that people who are, you know, um, you know, majors in finance are running healthcare companies and they're looking at spreadsheets with, you know, your profit and loss statement and your, and your revenue and expenses. And they're saying, well, let's, uh, let's put in some productivity requirements, right? They're not talking about quality of care, right? They're talking about like, how can we be more productive? How can we reduce staff? right by which will reduce our expense and how can we increase patient load which is going to increase our revenue right that to that to to the you know the people running private equity firms is quote unquote like more efficient right so there was a study done showing that 
unsurprisingly, hospitals that had been recently bought by private equity firms had more medical errors. Um, there's more staff stress um, and much more much more mistakes, many more mistakes and medical errors. There weren't importantly increased deaths um, in these in the study that was done, but um, the 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 error rate. Um, is an important consideration because it's it's pressing on a on a on a on a pressure point as far as how far can we push our nursing staff right for example um hey we have you know five nurses for you know i don't know 50 patients let's actually do four nurses for every 50 patients right that that would be you know hey we're reducing our expenses if we do that right so again just more and more misalignments um The other thing with private equity firms that's been shown is that they get into an area, they buy up small clinics, thereby reducing the consumer choice, and then they raise prices. And so um, almost all of the specialty groups and hospitals that have been bought by private equity firms are raising prices, right? Again, because they're there to increase revenue and decrease expenses. And if you reduce the choice of the consumer by eliminating competition by buying smaller clinics out of business then you can raise prices and they don't consumers don't have a choice they just have to pay because it's it's a quasi uh, monopoly um so large health insurance companies are doing very similar things um one of the things that's not talked about very often is that the affordable care act you know aka obamacare what that did uh or one of the things that it did was it uh, it capped insurance company profits at about 20%, I believe, but it did, it didn't cap hospital profits. And so then one of the things that's important to realize about the affordable care act is, um, you know, there was some, it didn't, it didn't really do anything to change or to reform healthcare itself, right? What the affordable care act was, it was a, it was a reform of healthcare insurance, Right. So um, it made it a law and mandated that that everyone had to buy a private company's product. Right. There, there's really no other comparable law. Right. Where instead of saying, um, you know, look, there's a there's a choicelessness like no one can choose when to get sick. We're going to cover you know people when they do. They said, hey, look, there's a choicelessness. Everyone has to buy this product from Humana or Aetna. And by the way, they're public, these are publicly traded stocks. Um, but we're going to penalize you if you don't buy this thing. Obviously there's, it's, you know, over a certain income and, and there were requirements, but, um, that's really what the affordable care act did, right? It mandated that people buy private health insurance if they didn't have a certain income level. So, but one of the one of the stipulations in the Affordable Care Act was that it capped, and because of this, right, like the way that it got passed was they said, okay, well, you have to buy insurance or we'll penalize you, but insurance company uh, profits are capped, right? So they can't price gouge. But hospital profits aren't capped. And so what's happened is that hospitals and insurance companies have become the same thing, where you have the, you have parent companies that, have an arm of the business that is an insurance company and an arm of the business that is the hospital system or, you know, a medical clinic network. So, uh, in, 
in Oregon, right? This is a Providence is a great example. Providence, Providence health is an insurance company and it's also a hospital system. And so, uh, and this is not unique to them at all. I'm just using them as an example, but what this does is when Providence health insurance, um, has its members because Providence health insurance has a cap on how much it can profit. It diverts and forces Providence health insurance members to only get care at Providence clinics and Providence hospitals, right? So that they can basically pay themselves and the hospital has no cap on profits. And so, um, this has, this is sort of, this gets into the weeds with sort of in network, out of network and insurance contracts and how they negotiate with out of network people. And, um, but Suffice it to say, this is this is happening all across the country. And basically what you have is, you know, again, capitalism is a great way to find sort of loopholes in innovation. Unfortunately, uh, that can sort of on the dark side be, uh, you know, results in, you know, finding loopholes for, for things that maybe there shouldn't be loopholes for. Um, but big companies that are now both the hospital and the insurance company, so it's diverting the the insurance members only into their hospitals, again, reducing choice, um, and also, um, ensuring that their revenue on the hospital side is as high as possible because the insurance profits are capped. And then in Portland, uh, in Portland, Oregon, we also have a similar, um, we, we can see this playing out as far as merging and bigger and bigger consolidation where legacy and OHSU just merged, um, it'll take, I assume, you know, I think it'll take a year or two to, to actually sort of, you know, kind of take hold, but, um, you know, multi-billion dollar deal where, uh, the OHS used the big research, uh, hospital and medical school, um, academic institution in Portland and legacy is one of the biggest hospital systems. They're now going to be one entity. And so where you had more choice and where, you know, at least kind of ostensibly legacy and OHSU were competing quote unquote for, for patients. And ideally you would want them to compete through providing better and better care, which again, I would argue would, isn't, wasn't really what's happening, but now you have, now they're just the same thing. And so you have a further consolidation, you have less choice from patients and you have uh, more and more of that race to the bottom, um, that we talked about at the beginning where, the poor outcomes health-wise are leading to more expensive care and because care is expensive and because insurance companies are trying to reduce expenses, people delay care because it's unaffordable and then the delayed care results in worse outcomes and then the worse outcomes results in more expensive treatments and so on and so forth, round and round and round. So from a doctor's perspective or a healthcare provider's perspective, what all of this stuff does, right? So everything from the sort of um, profit motive and the revenue perspective of the business to the um, responsibility to shareholders from an insurance company's perspective to the patient as a as a resource right as a as a um, as a product not a customer from the short term long term mis uh, misalignment because of insurance switching to the consolidation and privatization of uh, small clinics and uh, and gobbling up consumer choice in the healthcare system. From the perspective of a healthcare provider, what this amounts to is that doctors and nurses and 
um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are spending more time and doing more work in a more dissatisfied way to provide documentation for insurance companies, not to provide better patient care. So the administrative burden of all of these things is that because insurance companies are incentivized to not provide care, they put up huge amounts of administrative burden on healthcare practitioners to make it difficult to deliver the care that the expert in medicine deems is appropriate. So administrative tasks are often the primary activity that many physicians do um, and many healthcare providers do, right? So there's, there's the practicing of medicine, there's the seeing your patient and trying to do a good job listening to them, hopefully trying to do a good job getting a diagnosis, figuring out what the right treatment is for that person at that time. And then there's the hoop jumping uh, exercise of documenting, checking boxes on a computer, um, and getting the right codes and, and going through this really long rigmarole to justify to an administrator in an insurance company why you think the patient that you just saw needs the, the care that you say that they need. Um, this is why doctor visits are five to seven minutes long. Uh, the doctor has to leave and go jump through hoops to get the documentation done so that they can get paid. Right. And actually, that's actually the other thing. It's not just about getting the patient care. It's about getting themselves paid. Right. So when you're in network with an insurance company, from a doctor's perspective, you don't get paid unless you are justifying what you did well enough. Right. And that's usually happening, you know, two or three months after you actually do the thing that you're getting paid for. So, this all results in, or is a, you know, kind of a product of the top down management that's really becoming more and more algorithmic, right? So, um, people fall into a bell curve. Bell curve is a normal distribution. People in insurance companies, especially, and, and really I would argue, but conventional medicine as a whole is moving more and more toward out toward algorithm based medicine where, um, people are treated in a very formulaic fashion. And that's really great for top-down control, like top-down um, policy decisions. Um, it creates an enormous administrative burden and it, and it, and it um, creates a massive amount of people who um, get left by the wayside because they don't fit into the algorithm neatly. Right, to not belabor this too much, but on a, on a normal bell curve, right, you have one one standard deviation um, above and below the average accounts for, what is it, like 63% or something like that. Um, so, you know, 63% of people are within one standard deviation of the average. Uh, that means that 37% of people, right, over one in three, right, more than one in three people are... Um, are not falling are not falling into that sort of average kind of category, and that algorithm uh, dynamic can be both on the basis of diagnosis and on the basis of treatment, right? So, um, the algorithm based medicine works really well if you're if you have a super average normal disease presentation and you respond as expected to normal medications, right? But um, there's an enormous amount of people who 
that's not the case, right? They have, there's, there's unusual presentations to diseases. There's unusual diseases themselves. There's non-responders. There's um, different responders to medications. And this is assuming that the algorithm is correct in the first place, which often it's not. So from a patient's perspective with all of this, what you have is healthcare is more expensive. You have less time with the healthcare providers and you yourself have a huge administrative burden, right? So navigating as a patient, navigating the system of referrals, appointment scheduling, checking if your doctor's in network, checking your deductible account um, or de deductible amount, um, and even knowing what your deductible is. What is the difference between a deductible and an out-of-pocket um, out max? Um you have your insurance premiums that increase while also your deductibles are increasing, right? So as a patient, you have to navigate this extremely complex system of, you know, you go to one clinic you're, that you know is in network, right? And then you, you, because you pay a monthly premium to an insurance company, and then you pay that clinic a copay. And then you also still have to pay out of pocket to whatever amount your deductible is. Um, and then, you know, you have a, you get a referral to a different clinic, which is a different company, um, and then have to check if they're in network and then wait three months to get scheduled with them and then also pay out of pocket more because you haven't met your deductible yet. Um, it's a, and all of this, all of this complexity and, and um, the sort of maze of administrative duties, this is really important. All of this that I'm just explaining is not a bug, right? It's not, it's not a negative externality, right? It's not a bug in the system. It is a feature of the system because all of this, again, from the insurance company's perspective results in cost savings, right? It results in decreased expenses. The, the difficulty of getting care is part of how the system is set up, right? Look at the dynamics of pre-authorizations, both from a doctor's perspective and a patient's perspective. These are things that are put into place to throttle the care that is delivered to patients and to basically impose an algorithm onto doctors' decision-making so that they, so that insurance companies don't have to cover the thing that your doctor thinks that you need, right? The person who saw you, the person who went to medical school and saw you face to face thinks that you need a thing, whether it's an imaging or a, or a medicine. And then your insurance company says, well, we have this uh, hoop that they need to jump through that, that takes time, right? Either from the doctor or from their staff, right? Who then you have to pay. Um, and then we go through an algorithm with you and then we say, well, no, actually you've made the wrong decision because even though you're an expert, our algorithm says that you're wrong and the pre-authorization has been denied. Therefore, uh, you're not going to get the care, um, whatever the thing is, you're not going to get the care that, that you want. The insurance company has achieved their goal of denying care and lowering expenses. Okay. So this is, this is, this is incentive misalignment. Now I think it's an important aside or an important kind of thing. Cause as we talk about all this stuff, it's easy to, I think it's easy to, to kind of fall back on the explanation of like, gosh, like if there just weren't these, these bad people involved, you know, we could make this system better. Right. And I'm a, I'm a really bit, I, I believe very strongly in what I call kind of my, my evil people theory, which is that there are an exceedingly small number of like what we would 
truly call evil people in the world, right? Like people like looking to do bad, right? I think that, I think the number of, of truly bad people is really, really small. I think, and this could be, you know, sort of in a more sort of Western or Christian, um, uh, framework, right? It's sort of good versus evil in a more Buddhist framework. It could be insight or ignorance, um, insight versus ignorance, uh, or good versus evil, sort of the same thing. But the idea is, I think it's easy to say when we talk about, you know, insurance company, we haven't even talked about pharmaceutical companies and how they, you know, sort of increase the price of, of, of care. Um, but it's easy to say, oh, if people weren't so greedy, if this one person, you know, behaved better. But I, I think the important thing to realize is that there is no conspiracy here. There is no group of evil people trying to make Americans unhealthy, right? Pharmaceutical companies, the financiers, people on the left, people on the right, the lobbyists, the politicians, the greedy doctors, right? I, I really believe strongly that none of that is is a viable explanation right? because there just aren't that many bad people bad outcomes come predominantly from decent people doing their best within bad incentive structures right there's no evil people necessary to create all of this all these bad outcomes that we see right there isn't a conspiracy to destroy the u.s healthcare system or to make americans unhealthy there's just a really complex layering of suboptimal incentive structures that promote bad outcomes in the big picture even if in a very narrow view, things can be measured um, that have good outcomes, right? Like reduced cost, or we have good patient satisfaction with this one particular thing. So, and this also, you know, so I think that's really important. Like I'm not blaming anyone. None of this, you know, as I think hopefully as you can tell has been ad hominem, right? So I'm not blaming any individual. I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think this is a very complex emergent property of a bad incentive structure and really people with good intentions, um, uh, doing harm out of ignorance. Right. And so again, there's not evil people, but there are ignorant people and you can be really, really smart. And I'm, and again, when I talk about these things, like I am not immune to this at all. I have, I have my own, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> levels of ignorance for different, different areas. We all do. Um, blind spots, right? You can be really, really smart, right? You can be, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, 20 plus year physician with multiple, you know, doctorate degrees and have blind spots and blind spots are just forms of ignorance. And so it can be really smart people with really good intentions, working their butt off for the good of humanity, um, that produce bad outcomes because of the incentive structures. And so I think that's a really important thing because it's not really anyone's fault, I would say. Um, and I also think American culture itself is a part of it, right? Um, we, we're not going to get into this in detail, but just one of the things, and I probably will do a podcast about this, uh, a whole separate subject, but the, the, there are cultural problems that result in healthcare issues, right? So Pepsi and Coca-Cola as companies are, are just trying to provide a product that people enjoy. Right. And if they maximize that goal, they're going to sell more and more sugary beverages, which has a negative effect on our health. And I really think like, I don't really believe that the government should uh, make things like that illegal. But if we 
were really serious about health in this country, we would make Pepsi and Coca-Cola illegal. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't sell them. Right. I, I think that they're, they're such an unabated negative on our society that there's no reason for them to exist. Quite honestly. Um, I don't think that necessarily should happen in the context of like the, the broader implications of just shutting down a business, but just, you know, just to, to kind of take an example, Pepsi and Coca-Cola are, are making products that have, purely negative externalities on the healthcare system, right? They make people sick, right? They're like cigarettes. I mean, there's really, in my mind, there's very little difference between um, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and, you know, Philip Morris. So they maximize their goal as a company uh, by providing products that people enjoy, right? By enjoy, we mean, you know, feed on their dopamine responses and, and sort of hijack their evolved... Um, traits to seek, um, you know, high reward foods. They maximize that goal, right? They make more money. They also happen to benefit from, you know, American farm subsidies, um, because high fructose corn syrup in these products are, is possible because of excess, um, agricultural, uh, production of corn, which is paid for by the, by the U S taxpayers, in the form of farm subsidies, which then goes back into the system as making Americans sick, which then increases the cost of our healthcare. So that's just one little snippet of like how the, the sort of the milieu that we are in the non, the things that we would consider non-medical, right? So, um, how it all conspires in this, in this way where, um, it, it becomes obviously very, very complex. So, the, the solution to this, you know, I, I don't really know. I don't know the solution. I think one thing to really consider is, you know, we, the United States is uniquely um, flawed in its healthcare system. As we went over at the beginning, we're also the only country in the world that has the system that we have. And so I think it's very hard to separate. You can't just say, look, our system works. It's just a matter of getting it to work right. It's like, we're so far off in the terms of expenses and outcomes as a healthcare system that there's no way I think our current system is defensible. So I think, you know, the, the, what is used everywhere else in the developed world is, is a single payer system, right? So Medicare for all, uh, quote unquote, socialized medicine. Um, you know, people, are, people in this country are very wary of that. I understand the wariness, you know, the, the government, um, is it's, it's hard oftentimes to find examples of, of government working, working efficiently and working, um, effectively and working in a, you know, non-corrupt way. But, um, so it has drawbacks. Um, and I also think, you know, the, the, what it does do is that it, it unifies an incentive, which is if the government is running a unified healthcare system, the incentive for the government is to create a, a healthier, happier, more satisfied public. Um, and that I think as an incentive is fundamentally different than a company seeking profits for its shareholders. And so, um, it goes back to what we're saying, the difference between buying an iPhone and being a patient, right? Is this, this idea of you don't have control and you don't have choice, but the, the, what single payer theoretically would do is it would align that particular incentive of if the payer of the healthcare is the government, the government is theoretically interested in the good of the people that should, um, 
align that incentive. Now it doesn't fix many other things. It doesn't fix administrative burden. It doesn't fix the scale of the problem, right? There's it's, it is very, very far from perfect. And you can talk to people in Canada about all the drawbacks about their single payer system. And I also think another interesting component of a, of a potential solution is that even if we knew, like if you, if you had some omniscient uh, ability to know the future, and if you knew that, you know, if we switch to single payer in the United States, that things would be better in 10 years, like unequivocally better. Um, you know, maybe we drop to like the third most expensive healthcare in the world, right? Like we kind of, we, we kind of get down to like kind of a normal zone as far as relative to our peers, as far as expense and outcomes. Even if you knew for certain that that was going to happen, we could say five years. What I think is an important thing to realize is that even if we knew that it would almost certainly be worse in the short term, meaning the change itself going from where we are now to a single payer in the short term, it would be worse. It would, it would, it, the change would create a huge disruption. People's care would be, would be upended. Um, doctor's offices would, doctor's offices would be scrambling. The inefficiency would spike. Um, that there would be a, an enormous amount of pain to make a change. And I think that that barrier, that, that initial pain and inefficiency and, and, and drawback is probably enough in my mind to, to, um, to believe that it's never going to happen. Um, because the political will would have to be there. And because we elect politicians on two to four year cycles, there's no incentive for politicians to stretch for something that, you know, even if we, again, even if we knew if we had a guarantee that it was going to be better in five to 10 years, um, the political will is not there to create or to, to go through the short term pain. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, you have these, again, these, these huge companies that would not just, um, voluntarily dissolve themselves, um, into, into one large system. Right. So, um, I do think single payer, uh, potentially provides a solution. I don't think it will ever happen. Um, and that's maybe cynical, but it's also, I think when we just look at how things work, I think it's, I think it's the case that that is. So, uh, that brings us to my business model, the business model of cascade regenerative medicine, and, you know, I've, I've gave up a long time ago, you know, uh, with the idea of trying to like kind of change the system. I think that working within the system does not do anything to change it. Um, I think, I think the sort of the idea that like, you know, if we just, you know, the, the change from within idea, I think is, um, is a little bit too rosy, a little bit too far-fetched. Um, and I don't think really, um, I don't think really plays out. So my business is not a solution for all of these problems. It is, however, a, a little bubble of sanity, a little oasis of quality first and patient centered care, um, within a huge, vast landscape of inefficiency and, um, and cost reductions and care denial that, that we just went through. So, my, the business model at Cascade Regenerative Medicine, right, is direct. You're paying us. You're paying the clinic that provides you your care, right? It's much more direct and you pay for what you get. Um, and you know what you're going to pay. There's no middleman. Um, I am the CEO and the doctor. 
it's much more business-wise like a tradesperson, like a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician. Um, it's much more from a business sense in line with those businesses where I'm providing a service and you're paying for the service. Um, and um, not billing insurance is the thing that allows for my model to exist because without this, the complexity and the administrative burden, like we talked about earlier, completely breaks everything down. And I have to, um, spend less time with people in order to bill more patients. Um, and then the, the scale flips from time and quality to quantity and productivity. And so that's why we don't bill insurance um, and why we can't bill insurance. It's it's really, um, I would like for things to be less costly for, for people. And I think our prices are very, very fair when you consider all of the external costs that go into um, other forms of healthcare delivery. But um, the thing for me and for my sort of career moving forward and for my my goal for myself and for my patients is I think that I'm really intentionally and consciously zigging while the entire industry zags um, because I think while things are going to become more and more algorithmic, more and more consolidated, less and less choice, um, more and more of like kind of cog in the machine assembly line medicine, um, that there's always going to be a demand for... Um, for a type of care that prioritizes time, that prioritizes quality, that prioritizes individuality. And that's what we're doing at Cascade Regenerative Medicine. So um, while we may not be a solution for the entire system, um, because I don't think the system will change, um, we are a place where you can go um, right now to get really uniquely high-quality person-centered care. Um, almost every month that we've been open so far, we've been open eight months. Um, every month at least we've had a patient, um, reflect to us. Thank you so much for what you do. This is the best medical experience that I've ever had. Um, and to hear that from multiple people regularly is really, it's really encouraging to me, but it's, it's also, um, it just goes to show, you know, like I'm not really doing anything that special, right? I'm, I'm prioritizing people. I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with people. I'm doing um, attention to detail, right? And, and that is impressing upon people in such a way that, um, it's, it's the, you know, it's the best care they've ever had. And so, um, that's what we're doing at Cascade Regenerative Medicine to assign, to align our incentives with your incentives. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that happens. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it happens very much in our in our health coach system. And so that's the business of medicine. Um, unfortunately, I think that's uh, kind of you know not to end on a low note. I think that's where things are. I do think uh, that knowing why things are the way they are is helpful. So hopefully that this, this discussion helps you understand a little bit more about why things are the way they are, how they came to be. Um, and also, you know, that there are alternatives, right? It's not just about alternative medicine. It's about alternative business models and alternative, uh, delivery models. So that's it for now. 
Thanks all for listening and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you are curious to learn more, please visit our website at CascadeRegenMed.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Cascade underscore Regen underscore Med. And you can schedule with us today. If you or anyone you know has uh, joint pain, arthritis, sports injuries, we'd be happy to answer your questions and help you out. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you in the next episode.